From space, it seems a canyon, unhealed yet scar tissue white, a wound yawning latitudinal between the sluice grafts of Los Angeles and the flaking, friable, half-buried hull of Las Vegas, a sutureless gash where the Mojave Desert used to be. In the pixel promises of satellites, it could be the Grand Canyon, its awesome chasms and spires, its photogenic strata, our great empty. But scale is a fearsome thing. Scale is analogy. When understood correctly, scale expresses itself mostly in the bowels. See to the east there, that red thread flagella, that hair on the lens, that moat in the vision, that teensy capillary is the suicidal region's dry vein opened. That is the Grand Canyon, where the silty jade Colorado once ran. Returning our gaze westward, the mine lurches vertiginously. The vast bleached gash we once took for a chasm protrudes. The formation pops from canyons to mountain. Another optical lurch as strata go shadows, as mountain goes mountains. Closer and the eye brain swoons again. These mountains move as if alive, pulsing, ebbing, throbbing, their summits squirming, their valleys filling and emptying of themselves. Mountains turned not mountains, not rock or no longer. Once rock, dead rock, the sloughed off skin of the Sierra, the Rockies, and so on. Sand dunes, dunes upon dunes, a vast tooth-colored super dune in the forgotten crook of the wasteland west. How it happened, they could explain. A microchronicle even the layest Mohav might recite. Drought of droughts, wind of winds. Rivers, lakes, reservoirs, and aquifers drains. Crops and ranches succumb, vegetation withered, leaving behind deep, dry beds of loose alkali evaporate. Scraping wind, 500-year wind, the desert's primal inhale raking the expired floodplain, making a wind tunnel of California's central valley. Metaphors were unavoidable. The Amargosa Dune Sea was a disease, a cancer, a malignancy, a tumor, a steamroller, a plow, a hungry beast, a self-spawning corpulence, a bloated blob, gobbing land, various images of appetite, projections of our ugly innermost selves. Yet, in a terrain not quite subsumed by the doom, an anorexic wannabe orphan languishes in a vintage car on the shore of a sulfur lake abandoned with the nameless child she took through with playing house, dying of thirst. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, August 29th, 2016, and today we will explore the meaning of that for which we thirst, gold, fame, citrus. California, and we'll do so with a National Book Foundation 5 under 35 fiction writer, Claire Vey Watkins. Watkins is the author of Battleborn, which won nearly every award for short fiction. She is the recipient of the Story Prize, the American Academy of Arts and Letters Rosenthal Family Foundation Award, and a Guggenheim Fellowship, among other many other honors. Her stories and essays have appeared in Granada, One Story, The Paris Review, and elsewhere. An assistant professor at the University of Michigan, Watkins 
has also taught at Bucknell and Princeton, and she and her husband are co-directors of the Mojave School Creative Writing Workshop for teenagers in rural Nevada. Most recently, she produced Gold Fame Citrus, which was published last fall by Riverhead Books, wherein unrelenting drought has transfigured Southern California into a surreal, phantasmagoric landscape, with the Central Valley barren, underground aquifer drained, and the Sierra snowpack entirely depleted most Mojaves, prevented by both armed vigilantes and indifferent bureaucracy from fleeing closed borders to lusher reasons, have allowed themselves to be evacuated to internment camps. In Los Angeles's Laurel Canyon, two young Mojaves, Luz, once a poster child for the Bureau of Conservation, and Ray, a veteran of the forever war-turned-surfer, squat in a starlet's abandoned mansion. Holdouts, they subsist on ration cola and whatever they can loot, scavenge, and improvise. Immensely moving, profoundly disquieting, and mind-blowingly original Watkins novel explores the myths we believe about others and tell about ourselves, the double-edged power of our most cherished relationships, and the shape of hope in a precarious future that may be our own. More information about Watkins and her work can be found on her website, ClaireVWatkins.com. It's truly an honor to be hosting her today. How are you doing today, Claire? I have um, been better. Just about nothing sounds worse to me than listening to you read my work, even though you read it beautifully. It's just so painful to hear my own writing. <laughs> but I'm really so. You're one of those, show. really. I know. Because I'm one of those. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. It's it's it was beautifully read. I'll say that <laughs> it was beautifully read. I love what you did with it, and I'm very impressed. I stumble a lot when I that passage you read is the first, like those are the first sentences of the book I ever wrote, even though they appear in the middle of the book. They but, do uh, appear in the middle, huh? Mm-hmm. I don't even know where to start with this. Um, <laughs> let's start. We could start with the the Victorians, but I think I want to start with last summer. Did you did you recognize that it was the fiftieth anniversary of the science fiction book Dune? No, I did not observe the anniversary of the science fiction book Dune. I've actually never read science fiction book Dune, nor have I seen the film based on science fiction book Dune, nor have I exposed myself to any of its sequels, prequels, or non-canonical fan fictions. (laughs) But I did, as a joke, suggest calling this book Dune, and sadly, no one thought that that would be a great idea. (laughs) Well, it's impossible to read a book about Dunes and not at least think about Mm -hmm. it a little bit, but it was... So last summer was the 50th anniversary, and I think it was partially based on some bad ecology, which is really interesting because mm-hmm. these things like even Anne uh, Rand, Rind, mm-hmm. they just, they, they develop momentum and you start believing in the political ideology, like maybe this is something. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's like all these different categories of science fiction. There's like stuff that illuminates what we didn't know how to talk about, like Orwell, you know? Yeah. And then there's stuff that conjures up fiction so believably that we think it's real, like um, Anne Rand. And then um, 
other stuff that's, you know, dismissible as a story and also as a political philosophy, so it doesn't really last that much. Like a lot of, I would say, um, well, I don't know, you know, I'm not really that much of a science fiction head. I'm being a real poser in this book. I actually kind of thought of it in terms of genre as more of like a Western. But it just happens to be set in this sort of like, you know, science-based setting. I I was informed after I wrote the book that it it is it is determined to be cli-fi. Do you know what that is? No. So it is not as I originally thought. It is not a subgenre of erotica. It is science or climate fiction. So sort of like a subcategory of sci-fi that uses hard science to talk about climate change. And apparently there's a lot of these kinds of things out there, which makes makes sense because it's, you know, it's like the horror of our age. So it is. In fact, people would want to be telling the story, you know? Yeah. I mean, I talked to uh, the author, I can't think of his name now, Herbert who wrote his son. Oh. I talked to and he's writing Cli-Fi. Oh. So his, the the author of Dune's Wait, son. Wait, Frank Herbert's son? Yes. It's Frank, right? Frank, Frank Herbert? Frank Herbert's son See, is Brian never... Herbert. And he Wait, writes... what? <laughs> Frank Herbert's son is named Brian, and he's writing Cli-Fi. Okay, I thought you said his name was Franken Herbert. And I was like, no, Frank didn't name his son Franken, did he? <laughs> no. no. Um, are you like a Dune head? Was Dune an important book to you? No. I, it it no. was, no, it was to my father. And therefore, it was one of oh, these totems yes. of my youth where I had like... How old are you? Uh, 44. Okay. I just want to know who I'm dealing with here, you know? <laughs> this is This is reasonable. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it was like a, it was a very masculine book. It really was, Dune. yes, it, it you is. You don't have to talk about Dune if you don't want to. I'm no. just sort of riffing off into space. Sure, but so it was... But all my boyfriends liked Dune, and it was like a big, thick book that you carried around because you had like a big dick or whatever. Yeah. You know? And it just seemed like not available to me. Like I would be less feminine if I read it or something, which is one of the, you know, I've heard that when I was a young woman about the corrections too. Did you read the corrections? Mm. I did read the corrections. Yeah. You know, I read it before. I just found it and this is not meant to be an insult, but it inevitably is because rent such a lightning rod. But, um, I found it at the free box when I was camping and like the, the lodge that, you know, we hiked up to this, um, look fire lookout and I found it up there and I was like, Oh cool. I didn't bring a book on this trip. So I didn't even know who Branson was sure. at all. I mean, I think I was like 22 when, and then the corrections had been out for a long time. So I, I read him pretty like virgin. Like I didn't, it was the only time I read Franson that I didn't know about his lightning roddedness and his successes and his affectations and, and so on. So it's my favorite of his books for that reason, I think. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I've had a hard time reading him since then. Sure. All right. Well, that was definitely a digression. But so um... <laughs> <laughs> that I mean, now my husband is like belching in the background. I hope you can hear that. <laughs> <laughs> so you you mentioned that you thought of it as erotica, and I would say that it's really a sensual book. But I definitely <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think of it as erotica. I just think cli-fi is a filthy term. Oh, gotcha. Okay, cli-fi. Yes, 
Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Especially like when you see it written because it's just C L I FI. Sure. I'm like that's okay. very specific. Tell me about the the Amargosa Sea and whether or not scientifically it would actually hold up, or if you even cared. I kind of cared, um, like I, <laughs> in as much as I care about anything. Um, let's see. So I learned a lot about desertification and the process of desertification, and except I did not learn how to say the word desertification, desertification. I don't know. Anyway, um, I learned a lot about that, and then I had, I, and then I had to unlearn a lot of it because it becomes a real like. Um, you know, there's no point, I don't think, in, like, tying one, one hand behind your back when you're writing a story and try to make it all, like, you know, for one thing, geologic time is not very dramatic, right? Like, if I'm trying to write about the formation of this geological phenomenon, I'm, it would be very cool to write in geologic time, and I'm sure that, like, Wallace Stegner could have done it, but not, not me. So, you know, no, it's, it, it's pretty, it's probably not... It's not at all like, it's not, you know what, it's not like a warning. Like, I'm not trying to say in the book, like, this is what will happen, this crazy, you know, white whale of a sand sea will form. Or uh, you better do this, you know. I just like the image, and I was very stoned and watching Planet Earth a lot after I finished my first book, and then I was like, yeah, man. I mean, you can tell it's like a totally stonery book. Like, what if, but wait, no, and there would be like, no water. Oh, bro, that's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) There's something about it, though, that is really, um, so I want to, I want to call her Luz, but I think it's, it's pronounced Luz. How do you pronounce it? It is pronounced Luz. Yeah. It's a, it's a, you know, mispronunciation that becomes her name. Luz. Her gringo dad says, Luz, but her her name is the Spanish word for light, which would be pronounced luz. So you're you're not wrong. Okay. Either way. But the interesting thing about her is that it's written in such a way that, like the shifting sand, we don't really know what to believe ever about. She's pretty unreliable, I think. Yeah. Well, like. Welcome to humanity, man. You know, like everybody is unreliable. Like every there, there is either every narrator is an narrator or a reliable narrator. And so you kind of, and I'm not going to spoil it because I do think the audience needs to check it out and read it. The thing that I found interesting is that oftentimes Luz's idea of what was going on was informed by these two men, but we really mm-hmm. didn't, we didn't know their they're difficult to trust both these guys. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, Mm -hmm. who are these guys? (laughs) (laughs) Um, that's a good question. I don't know them very well myself. Um, let me, let me do my best though. There's Ray who is her beloved and her boyfriend and her cohabitor and lover and partner. Um, when we, the book opens up and, it's she and Ray who do the kidnapping that you mentioned in that passage. And then um, later we meet this dowser guy, Levi. I mean, I, you know all this. What do you really want to know about them? Um, can Levi find water? I don't really know. You know, 
I, there's a lot that I don't have an answer for. And I, I just, you know, I only like followed the leads that were interesting to me. And some of them, I didn't really need to know whether he could really, um, have this. He has like a, uh, if you like, just for people who haven't read the book, he has like a power where he can sense where fresh water is basically like a, a dowser as in a dowsing rod. Right. Yes. Which I found out is a practice that a lot of people still, still use. Isn't yeah. that cool? Yes. Like the world is so ancient, you know? Well, <laughs> anyway. I have farmer folk in my lineage and there are dowsers. Mm. Yeah, totally. Right. Yeah. And um, I, I also read a book or two, I read a few books on dowsing. This is again, like we were talking about, like how much do you have to know about something? Right. So I read a couple books about dowsing and then I started trying to do it myself oh. with like a, um, a chain, like a little crystal on a chain and to see if I could feel it. And, um, I, I don't know. I thought I maybe could. So I, I was like, now I know enough. Like now that I can maybe feel where, of course I never really like dug down and tested my, myself or anything, but. But Levi is a cult figure. And so he's enigmatic and he's powerful and. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, a. Yeah, my friend says, like, oh, the, like, sexually charismatic cult leader, is there any other kind? And I'm like, well, no, because you need a lot of sexual charisma to lead a cult. Yes. And the world just kind of swoons before him. Right. Yeah. He has, like, a real pull, you know? And the thing that I find really enchanting about him is that you really want to believe him, you know? You, yeah, right, exactly. And, and, but so yeah. like, here's a book um, that came out a few years ago that's also set in the Mojave Desert about a cult um, by Harry Coons mm-hmm. called Gods Without Men. Did you read that one? Yes, indeed. I love that book. And I actually, some of my book was set at those columns, those tufa columns that Harry's writing about. Uh-huh. Um, and I had to cut it out because I was like, damn it, no, these are too good and I can't outdo him. So I just got to cut them. Huh. Well, yeah, because... and I was like, thank God he didn't do the, shop, the outdoor Christmas-themed shopping mall. Yeah. You know? <laughs> you start to write a book like this, and you're like, I mean, you know, the world doesn't need another, like, dystopian post-apocalyptic narrative, but you write what you have to write, and you can't really, you know, I couldn't really change it. But in that book, I fully believed in the veracity of the cult until it fell apart. And then even after that, it's like... It was built on some truth, and once the truth dissolved, then it all fell apart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, it's like what they say about, like, con men, right? Like, you you don't have to do much to con people because we really want to believe. We do. Like, we're very generous people, which is actually, you know, it's a dark world, like cults and manipulating people but that's a very optimistic view of humanity is like people are fundamentally decent and they'll let you in and of course they created like i don't think i believe that about people i don't know some days i do some days i don't but in a way like somebody like levi or like a charles manson or somebody um, is is pretty optimistic about who we are as people and then uses it to like use our best the best parts of ourselves against us crazy all right, maybe I have to invoke this NPR show. If you were to draw, and I don't know if I believe this, but if you did you hear the recent TED Talk about liars? No. Okay. So, I'm on a TED Talk to detox because I kept thinking that every idea was going to change the world. 
Okay. No, so, so I haven't seen any TED Talks in a while. Okay. If you were to draw a Q on your forehead, a capital Q, and you were to do this now uh -huh. with your thumb, yeah. do this, and then... I did it. Okay. Who is reading the Q? Is it... Are you reading the cue, or is the person facing you reading the cue? I, I was reading it with my mind as I drew it. And so it's like you are reading the cue, but if someone's facing you, the cue would be backwards to them? Um, mm, yeah, I think it would be backwards to them. So apparently you're not a very good liar, according to the TED Talk. Really? Interesting. That's what I said, too. I don't think I am a very good liar. Are you, what did you get, good or bad? Well, there's no good or bad. It's just, so <laughs> the idea is that if you draw the cue so that other people are reading it, you're presenting mm -hmm. the idea that you want to present oh. forward to other people so that you're presenting something they can read. Whereas both you and I, right. <laughs> mm -hmm. I was trying to say, no, 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 uh, we're the audience. We're we're writing the cue. You know, there's. <laughs> I bet you I'm anything. Sure I'm following this cue business. Yeah, that was a probably a bad tangent. But anyway, Levi would definitely put the cue <laughs> the other way because he's. Okay. Okay. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's doing a. Sh he's like performing in a way. It's like for other people. For ours is for ourselves. Yes. We're presenting the the yeah reality that we're unable to present anything other than yeah i think that's true i think i have to say i agree with that diagnosis as scientific as it was <laughs> but so the interesting thing i found is that so i want to just believe people are good and so it wasn't you do a little trick here with uh like a literary um you know deconstructing of ray and then Dallas also mm -hmm. deconstructs Ray a little bit to show how, no, maybe his actions are selfish. Maybe he's not as good as we want to believe. Totally. Even totally. his language. Yeah, because like, yeah. Baby girl. Baby what do you girl. Mean? What do you mean by language? Oh, yeah, the girl thing. Right, yeah, Baby yeah, girl. Yeah. Baby mm -hmm. girl. You know, mm -hmm. nobody puts my baby in the corner. The, um, just that kind of dominating. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. And then it's like, well, oh. yeah, it's like a benevolent sexism. It's like chivalry, but which is a type of like being owned. You're just being owned by a really supposedly sweet dude, but he still fucking owns a person, you right. know? <laughs> He's yeah. totally yeah. controlling her. Right. And so it kind of reverses right there in book two about our thoughts on Ray. And then we start into yeah. this new journey. But then, you know, something similar happens because when you get into a cult and you're all strung out on the, the wacky cult drug, mm -hmm. it'll make you believe anything. Yeah. And, and it also feels better to believe something than to disbelieve it. Like, I don't know about you, but I'm not really like that interested in cult stuff, except for as it's like sort of a, a parable about believing in God or not, you know, like I really want to believe in, I don't know. I just want to have that dimension of like my mind that it can believe in God. I don't really have it, you know. So I'm like this reluctant atheist, and um, but I wanted to like I really kind of am curious about what it feels like to be a believer, you know. But I don't. If it's weird because when I go on vacation, I realize that story is so fundamental for everyone. 
Like you just realize when you get out of your own story that everyone is gravitated to some story and that's the thing that gives their life meaning. Yeah, totally. And yeah. It's, it just, some stories are really, really powerful and they have so much momentum. Like yeah. biblical story. Mm -hmm. It's just, but so I'm curious, uh, so you're a reluctant atheist. I mean, what stories? Well, are... I'm like a regretful atheist or like, I'm not really, I don't know. The stories that meant a lot to me were like, I don't know, they were stories about the natural world and they were stories for narratives, but they were about like the things you see when you look around you, you know? Well, so let's invoke some of the Victorians then, because I'm wondering like Powell or Muir or even like a Melville, like these guys who are doing stuff you know, a hundred plus years ago, but that really set things in a certain direction. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, yeah, well, I mean, I guess one way, one thing that comes to mind when I hear you say that is that how important Moby Dick was to me when I was writing this book in that, um, it kind of taught me that a novel, like how wild and unruly and rebellious a novel could be as a form, you know? So that like, I just kept feeling like I wasn't good at being a novelist because I'm like, I don't want to write what I was writing yesterday. I want to write something else. Mm -hmm. And and then I'd be like, whoa, you can do that. Like you could write about whale semen in one chapter and then come back to the ship the next chapter, you know? Um, and do you it's think not, it's, he did that on hmm. purpose though? Like it is boring. Moby Dick is a boring book. But so I think being I at totally disagree. No, but being at sea would be boring. And so there's like uh, these passages and passages yeah. of whale, whale salmon. And then all of a sudden there's action. <laughs> and it almost right, does right, the book right. a disservice yeah. to show just the action, if you like, in the movie version. Because, of course, you're just going to move through right. the plot. Well, that's, that is, I believe, how Melville wrote it, if I'm not mistaken. That it was originally basically a genre adventure book. It was just going to find the whale. And, um, you know. It, it, and this was a really popular genre at the time, right? Like whaling adventure tales. So he's like, I just want to make some money and do this. And I don't know why exactly, or it's it's left my mind, but for some reason he didn't sell that book, didn't publish that book, and then put all this other weird shit into it. Yeah. Which has made it last, you know, a hundred years or whatever. Right. Um, and there's a yeah. new book out that's called Melville in Love that says that it's truly, he's pining for this other woman. And that was mm. his white whale. Uh huh. It, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. It's pretty fascinating. That's, I don't know. What, that sounds great. I'd love to read that. Well, give it a shot. It's called Melville and Love, and uh, it's you know the whole idea is that he's he's writing this book in his in his Berkshire farmhouse, looking at this white mountain called Greylock, dreaming of his mm. his. Uh, what do you call it? Your lover, his... Didn't he marry his cousin or something? Anyway. Anyway. Yeah. There's, I mean, so that's why the, it, it's not like the most subtle piece of imagery, but like the dune sea in Goldham Citrus is white because of Moby Dick, you know? I mean, like, sorry to like report from the Department of Obvious or whatever, but so just to, just to kind of like illustrate how, how big that was for me at the time and still is. And the, with the crux of the book is the Dune Sea is going to swallow the United States, and and we have to somehow. So the the cult is on the edge of the Dune Sea, and mm -hmm. they're saying 
there's life here. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Right. Um, well, yeah, yeah. So the idea is that it's, it's basically kind of like a parable about environmental injustice and the way that certain regions become called wastelands or thought of as disposable places. Um, and this, and then, and then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, in the way of like double speak does. So we talk about, and this all comes from me growing up in the Nevada desert and near the Yucca Mountain repository site. You, you know what that is? Yes, but why don't you explain what the Yucca Mountain Repository site is, and do those crosses right. really exist, or is that just planning? So the Yucca, Yucca Mountain is um, a project that's being like constructed by the federal government in the desert in Nevada. It's on hold right now. It was put on hold during George W. Bush's second administration, um, probably because of Harry Reid, um, in, in my view at least. Anyway, it would be the place where our nation stores their nuclear waste that we continue to produce. Like, we're probably, you and I, using nuclear waste energy right now, you know? We don't have any place to put all this waste, so they're going to... The idea, the plan is to just, like, put it in a hole in the ground, basically, in a really tectonically active place, but a place that is considered a, quote, wasteland, like... And they say, you know, it's like it's determined to be unpopulated, which is confusing because you're like, whoa, I grew up less than 100 miles from there. You know, what do you mean unpopulated? Yeah. So these are the ideas that Levi has about environmental injustice and a way that you can, your body can be your activism. Like if you put yourself in a place that is supposedly, quote, you know, barren, but you're there, isn't that a powerful stance? you know, literally and figuratively. Yeah. What else? Um, what else? <laughs> I, well, in, in this month's Harper, there's actually, there's an article about grass in Southern California. And this is one of those things that happened where in the 19th century, somebody said, oh, we should have Kentucky bluegrass everywhere and these nice little yes. postage stamp lawns. Yes, I read this. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've read... I feel like Donald Trump, but I've read a lot about grass. Yeah, yeah. So grass is like a good example of the myth. We're talking about like lawns, green lawns. Beautiful a good green example. Lawns. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the myth of the American West that the rain follows the plow. And um, so the American West at, still pretty much exists as like a propaganda campaign to get people to c- come on this really expensive, costly journey and populate this place so that the Mexicans wouldn't take it back since it was rightfully theirs, you know? So, but we still do, I think it's not uncommon for me to go to see some luminary writer of the American West and hear him speak about Lake Tahoe or the Sierras as if they like sprung up into being in 1849, like totally ignore experiences of indigenous people or have just no you know, we talk about people being ahistorical. Like, I want a word that means, like, ageologically historical. Like, you know, Catherine Schultz writes in this way. I'm sure you read her piece about the Cascadia Fault Ridge and, like, geologic time. And um, so she can really, somebody who can really make you feel what it means to, like, what to be small. You know, like, human beings are so small, we're, like, barely alive. So we should conduct ourselves with a little bit more humility, is my idea. 
there was a time when I was definitely thinking a lot about water. And one of the things that I think Powell is one of the surveys went through the West and was he was really thinking we needed to define boundaries based on water so that. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we ended up there. And now we have all these dams and. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Basically, like a lot of the decisions about how we use water in the West are based on this like mentality that we had during Manifest Destiny, which is like conquer that shit. <laughs> it's like, um, damn it up. You know, just, just because we can't. Sometimes the Army Corps of Engineers, I mean, this is all better said in Cadillac Desert by Mark Reisner, but to paraphrase, um, a lot of the Army Corps of Engineers super damning of the American West was just because they could. Because, like, they had the money. Um, they had they needed to put people to work anyway. And they're like, let's see if we can do Glen Canyon. Fuck, really? Yeah, why not? And then now it's it's like, ruined you know so all these i mean it just it's so crazy that you could fuck up glen canyon which took billions of years to form and these creatures that live there have been evolving and evolving and then just some like asshole with a engineering degree and then a few hundred dudes dan it up and and like change it irrevocably in six months or something like that's bananas you know well, I live in a place that is kind of begotten from that. It, mm. it Wallace Stegner's angle of repose. It, you know, yeah, sure. That was he's building the canals that made this desert. Yeah. Beautiful farmland. Right. All across. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, it, like the mining thing, and then yeah, and then just the engineering, and that was all about like dominating nature. You know, like it was. I don't think that there were, it wasn't like, first of all, there had been indigenous peoples living in what we call the American West for like how long, you know, and they just lived some, you know, in some cases they were like, you know, moving nomadically because yeah. the weather was extreme or they would move with the water or so on. Move but, with the water and the like, food and yeah. And the food, right. And also not go in there and kill every single fucking buffalo that's on the Great Plains, you know, but Europeans came with our, like, you know, questionable capitalist, misogynist, white supremacist values and wanted to, like, impose that on the land, which, and that's basically what is, like, you know, all of, like, I think of when I see a dam, I think of it as, like, a, a chain or, like, in bondage, like, the earth being, like, I can just see, like, a, a black leather strap, like, chained down, because it's, it seems to me, like, that's the only like logical explanation I can come up for what we have done to the earth there. Gosh, I'm really ranting. I it's hope okay. you edit this. I... <laughs> <laughs> well, at the beginning of the summer, I was talking to a an anarchist, and he really thinks his name is John Zerzan that we need to go back to like a really uh, hunter gatherer society. He, huh. he calls himself a future primitivist. <laughs> and I don't, I just don't know. So basically what I'm asking you is are you hopeful for the future? Do you think? Um I I'm not. I'm I I think I'm probably pretty nihilistic about the future in that like I um I just think like I'm a speck, like I'm dust, you know? And 
it's sort of like this nihilism meets Buddhism idea I have where it's like none of this really means anything and like yeah it will be like no I don't think good things are going to happen for our species in the future or for our lawns or for our bottled water or whatever but that's okay because like the world doesn't need our lawns or our bottled water you know like we talk about when I was a kid growing up the environmental rhetoric would say a lot about like save the earth save the planet Uh and I think now what we're starting to realize is like the planet doesn't fucking need us like the earth does not need us um and like will pass i mean it'll be interesting and perhaps notable because it's like at our own hand but um that's that's fine like species die every day and just one of them will be homo sapiens maybe you know (laughs) but mostly probably i'll just like die of lung cancer like everyone else you know yeah Yeah. well i mean so we the thing that we're experiencing every year is the august smoke from all the fires yeah mm-hmm. and it, i mean some days it is so bad you have no idea how like it's a, like a mm. fully a campfire in the valley just everywhere wow yeah mm. um but with... so easy for me to say right <laughs> you're like i'm in the i'm in the campfire here i am with the lung cancer and everyone's yeah coughing and raw mm-hmm. yeah yeah. Uh, but so, uh, moving on, what are you writing about these days? What? <laughs> oh gosh. Speaking of apocalyptic. Topic, are you, uh, it... nothing really. I'm not really writing at all. I'm just taking a break. Do, but so do you have any ideas that you're exploring or like things that you're reading kind of moving you in the direction of what's next? Or are you just kind of, um, I don't really, I have a lot of ideas, but they're all, like no, no one is really calling to me, like saying like you must sit down and write this, and I'm not going to write until that happens, which is not like the disciplined writer answer, and it's certainly not what I would tell my MFA students. You know, I would be like, I don't give a shit if you're fucking inspired, shoot your ass in the yeah. chair and write your thesis. You know, okay. yeah. but I'm not an MFA student writing a thesis, frankly. You know, and I realize that that's like an uber privileged observation, but it's true. Like I don't really, um, the world doesn't need another book and I'm not going to write one unless I absolutely like need to, you know? So I've just been like spending time with my daughter gardening. I'm like actually getting interested in the world again, because when I finished my second book, I mean, I I published two books and one at Guggenheim before I was 30. So by the time 31 came rolling around, I was pretty tired. And also I hadn't really done anything except for read and teach literary fiction for like five years. And so um, I was burnt out and I wasn't really interested in anything. And now I'm like gardening and making art and um, you're playing engaging with my kid. With the and world. Sure, yeah. So you're so writing... just being a, just, you know what I call it? I just say I'm just walking around with my feelers out for a while. That's wonderful. Yeah. No, I mean, so like maybe that's the best writerly practice is to just be part of the world. And Yeah, I think it has so for me, you know, and it's interesting that you use that phrase writerly practice because I was thinking a lot. I haven't been teaching all year, so I've sort of been able to have a kind of like a state of the union talk with myself about like, why am I teaching? And, you know, like, I don't want to do it if it's just like, Oh, it's just a paycheck. Like I need help insurance while I write my novels, you know? Um, I mean, I do, but I also want to be a 
good teacher and be mindful, if I may, about um, why I'm teaching in the first place. And I think I'd rather my students, like, I think what they can really get from me more than how to write a sentence, say, is like writerly habits of being and just like a community, even though that's become such an empty buzzword. But I do think that there's like something of tremendous value in a genuine community of writers. I mean, that's why we've been doing it this way for so long, you know. Well, we're just about out of time. And so I'm as, as kind of a closing thought, the, the community that this show is a part of is a bunch of people that are really interested in, in synchronicity, which is just meaningful coincidence. And it seems mm-hmm. like Levi's cult is built on the idea of the meaningful coincidence of everyone being drawn to this white whale, your, mm-hmm. your Emma Gosso yeah. didn't see. Do you have yeah. any good synchronicity or do you believe in that? Or what, what are your, what are your feelings about, you know, this idea of, of the universe speaking to you in some fashion? Oh, I'm all for it. And I totally like, for me, the most exciting thing about getting older is that I'm like more attentive to that kind of thing and more sensitive or more receptive or whatever you want to call it. But, and I've learned very few, very few things in life, but one of them is something along the lines of like, trust your instincts or your feelings. Or if you walk into a room and you have a bad vibe, that's real. Like you really felt that and it doesn't mean you have to like run screaming out of the room, but like to, to, um, you know, honor that, forgive my yoga speak. I'm, um, uh, it's unforgivable, but forgive it. Well, that was 42 minutes. Thank you so much for sharing with us. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So you've been listening to Claire Watkins on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and SyncBook.com. Be sure and check out her website, to which we'll link. Claire watkins.com for more information about the SyncBook. Our guests to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a SyncBook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as seasonal online hangouts with the hosts. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much. And your, your people came here looking for something better. Gold, fame, <laughs> citrus, mirage. They were freckles, oh, yeah? Schemers. No, will you stop? Oh, my gosh. It's wonderful. <laughs> but thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. All right. See you down the road. You bet. to rest